Hey friends, Tyler here with a special announcement for pastors and ministry leaders. On May 7th and 8th, Bridgetown Church will be hosting a pastor's gathering for ministry leaders and other pastors uh, around the theme of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a postmodern context. We're going to tackle themes like listening prayer and prophetic ministry, creating a culture of response and encounter. And we want to do so among like-minded leaders ministering in a similar context who are going after the same things. So if that's you and that sounds interesting to you, Come and join us on May 7th and 8th. Registration is live right now, and you can find more information at, at the website that is dedicated to this, bridgetown.church training. Hope to see you in May. Our teaching text for today comes from Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her, with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, how, now which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the, beggar, the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, brother. Morning, Bridgetown Church. It's really, it's, wow, you guys, you guys are in it. I love that. It's really great. It's really privileged uh, to be here. Uh, just been here a couple days. Um, and guys, there's some really sweet things happening here. And I'm excited to share uh, that experience with you. So my friend Scott goes to three AA meetings a week. And I met Scott about four years ago when he came into our little church plant on the west side of Columbus, Ohio. And at the time, he was about three years sober. So he already had his sobriety. He had found a higher power. God first came to him as light in his imagination. And then he had this experience with a redwood tree where he turned his uh, higher power to a redwood tree. I know this is crazy, but uh, he then grabbed onto God in that experience. But it was in the church, it was in our church with hurting people who were encountering the love of God 
where Scott experienced the presence of God and received his inheritance as a son of God. And he gave his life to Jesus. And so in the middle of 2020, we baptized Scott in a horse trough in the park. And shortly after that, Scott began going onto the streets of our neighborhood on the west side of the neighborhood, uh, offering to pray for people. And this, this prayer for people on the streets turned into a Friday night prayer gathering called Prayer and Pizza. Pretty creative there, right? Um, part of Scott's story, so this is Scott's current life. He is like out on the streets every single day praying for people. Friday night, people are headed to the next trap house. They come in, they eat a slice of pizza. He prays for them. That's his current life. His former life Uh, Scott used to own a company on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and he sold it for a lot of money, and then he stayed on as a C-level executive, earning a lot of money. But underneath everything that was happening externally and behind the closed door of his office suite, he was doing cocaine on his desk at 10 a.m. on a Wednesday morning. And as these things go, his life fell apart. Everything fell apart. His business, his marriage... His life just sort of dwindled away, and he spent the next several years spending every last dime on drugs. And so a few weeks ago, Scott was telling me about the last few items that he has from his former life, expensive items that I had never heard of, things like a Burberry belt and a Prada tie and a silver money clip from Tiffany's. Has anyone heard of any of those kinds of things? (laughs) That's not the life I live, so... Burberry Bell. I have no idea what that is. Um, So the reason that this story came up is that uh, Scott was trying to get this one guy, Jermaine, into into recovery, but the guy didn't want to go because he had a dog. And so Scott says to himself, well, if I could take Jermaine's dog, maybe this guy will go into recovery. And so I'm sitting at lunch with Scott, which we do twice a month, and there is a pit bull at Scott's house wreaking havoc. And I'm going to leave out a lot of the details of the story, but Scott told me that the pit bull found his Burberry belt and his Prada tie and completely destroyed them. And Scott's daughter, who's 17, in response to sort of watching this unfold, which feels like a bit of a parable, and it will so even more later, she said to her dad, she said, Dad, it's almost like every part of your former life is slowly disappearing. That belt and that tie aren't even who you are anymore. Burberry belt, Prada tie, and a pit bull finding the last two items from his old life. We're going to come back to this story just briefly. But it's the second Sunday of Lent, and I'm going to be continuing in this series, as Tyler mentioned. And one of the things that I want to tug on a little bit from what Tyler talked about last week was Jesus' often repeated question, what do you want me to do for you? And I want to talk to you this morning about shame. And everyone's like, yay. (laughs) And I want to talk to you about shame in the way that from the beginning, God has placed inside of us a remedy for that feeling that we have that we do not deserve to receive the thing that we want to ask God for. That we are somehow unworthy of that. And shame isn't necessarily explicit in our teaching text this morning, but it sits underneath the story and it's part of the backstory because shame has a way of lingering and hiding in plain sight. 
Shame is the part of our life that we can still carry, even though it really belongs to our former life. It hangs around like a Burberry belt and a Prada tie, and God is the most gentle pit bull that you could possibly imagine. (laughs) And he finds those lingering places of shame inside of us, and he carries them out, and he heals them with his love. And that's sort of what we're going to talk about today. So if you like the five-minute sermon, there it is. And we're going to continue to dig a little deeper. So shame is very simply that feeling that something is wrong with you. You guys know that feeling that you sometimes have like, what is wrong with me? In my sense, as I have prayed and as we continue to worship and as we continue to dig into this, my sense is that for some of you, some of you today are going to experience the love of God in a way that you have not yet experienced. And you're gonna begin a sense of a healing journey of shame in your life. Or maybe, maybe just a little. So our text this morning uh, is about a woman who shows up at a dinner party and eventually sort of creates a scene. And the question that I have found myself asking about this passage most recently is how did the woman get into the room? How did she get there? She's not dining at the table. She's not an invited guest. She's clearly out of place. And Luke offers a little bit of commentary as he tells the story. He tells us that she's known to be an immoral woman. She's likely a prostitute, which means she's in the company of social outcasts in the same category of people that Jesus has been giving his attention to. The bedridden, the leprous, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes. And scholars, they tell us that this kind of dinner party uh, where the, the home would have been large enough and the outside gates would have remained unlocked so that those who are on the outskirts walking by, they could wander in and at least sort of come into the room and hear the teaching of the visiting rabbi. And so there's some hospitality that's on display here on the part of the host. These gates are open, but we later learned that this guy didn't even offer to wash Jesus' feet. And so the hospitality is a little bit suspect. But nonetheless, there are guests who are wandering in and uh, they're hanging around the exterior of the room um, to at least try to hear some of the conversation because it would have been customary to invite a traveling rabbi to host for dinner and then to hope that the rabbi would sort of speak some words of wisdom. So that's sort of the scene that's going on. There's people on the outskirts there. But the invited guests, those, those folks are lying down, lounging, eating, and they're facing one another. I, I thought about actually trying to show you what that was like by lying on the stage, but I think that's not going to work. Uh, they're, sort of, they're, they're sort of propped up, leaning, facing one another around the table. And so their feet are pointed to the exterior of the room at the edge of their reclined beds. And the candlelights and the lamps on the table would have illuminated the food and the faces, but the outskirts would have remained a little bit in the dark. And um, they would be trying to keep quiet uh, enough to catch bits and pieces of the conversation because the teacher is here. And so this woman, she slips in carrying a jar of perfume and she finds the bed where Jesus is reclining and she stands behind, behind him at his feet And holding the jar of perfume in her hand, she just begins to cry. She begins to weep. But it doesn't seem like a loud weeping. It's sort of like, you ever have that moment where the tears are just 
I cry a lot, so I've had these moments. The tears are just sort of flowing. These seem to be the kind of quiet tears that flow from a really deep place, which is the first clue in my mind that perhaps she's holding some emotion in her body. And she's crying. Maybe these are even tears of stored up shame that she has carried. And as those tears flow, she, standing over the feet of Jesus, allows her tears to drip on Jesus' feet, and she begins to wet his feet with her tears. And the text says that she just kept wiping Jesus' feet with her hair, and then she begins to kiss his feet. Isn't this a beautiful scene? Like I just, as I've been thinking about this passage, I'm like, man, how do I get in that room? I wanna see this unfolding. And then she breaks out the perfume, which means that whatever she was able to keep hidden by being at the edge of the room around the darkness, whatever way she would have been able to sort of weep silently and maybe hide in the margins, this is no longer the case. The aroma of the perfume would have overtaken the room and the attention would have come to her. And so now everybody is probably looking at her. The woman, known for her occupation, tear-stained face, tear-stained face, hair down to her waist in a culture where people would wear head coverings. And finally, Jesus addresses what is no longer secret. The tears and the hair and the perfume, they all sort of come into focus. And he tells a brief story and he offers a brief teaching and then he finally makes mention of the woman. Do you see this woman? Do you see her? I remember, uh, I think it was more than a decade ago, Brene Brown gave the whole world what turned out to be a gift. You guys know Brene Brown? And we, we call her Saint Brene in our community. <laughs> so this gift really started um, with an uncomfortable realization that she had uncovered in her research. Uh, the basic idea of Brene's talk titled The Power of Vulnerability, you can go watch it on YouTube. Uh, she explores the importance of vulnerability in human connection and relationship. And she shares her research on shame and the fear of vulnerability and how they hinder authentic relationship from actually happening. And that initial TED Talk has been viewed more than 60 million times and it sort of birthed into our culture an awareness around shame and what it does and what it looks like and how it has its way with us. And I remember listening to an interview that Brene was giving with somebody and um, you know, this is a couple years after that initial research and I remember her saying that every last one of us has shame, all of us. And as she begins to talk, I remember thinking to myself, wow, I actually don't feel like I have a lot of shame. Like I feel fairly well adjusted. I don't feel incredibly insecure. I, I'm generally outgoing when I walk into a room full of strangers. Like I, I'm like trying to figure out how, what is she saying? I, I don't really feel a lot of shame. And so as I'm having this inner personal conversation with myself, my attention is drawn back to the interview where she's wrapping up her first point and moving on to the second. And she says, every one of us has shame And the less you think you have of it, it means that there's a good chance there is more than you realize. (laughs) So that was a bit unsettling, given the inner dialogue that I had just had. And I had a little bit of a moment there. I was just like, huh. 
But of course, I just blew right by, you know. (laughs) And it wasn't until years later that I began to be able to see the way that shame has woven itself throughout the story of my life. Shame sits underneath. It's hidden from us until we are able to actually see it. And it finds all of these different ways of leaking out sideways. And some of the early church fathers, they talk about shame as the first negative psychological experience that gives rise to all sorts of ways of coping in an attempt to cover up that negative experience, that negative sense that that I'm not good enough or that something is wrong with me. And these ways of coping, they're called the passions. And I'm Maybe you've heard of these, and if you haven't heard of them, you've probably experienced them. Gluttony, lust, greed, despondency, anger, or that really weird form of boredom when you just like don't want to do anything, or vainglory and pride. These are all of the different ways that this primal message of shame leaks out sideways, but they all play the same tune. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. And while we would almost never be able to say it out loud, what is driving all of the thoughts that you and I combat and all of the emotions that leak out sideways and all of the ways that we overreact to our kids and all of the ways that we might feel slighted at a meeting or we overindulge in food and drink and sex and work or whatever that is for you, At the center of our soul is a sickness that more or less resides in the unconscious belief that there is something fundamentally wrong with me. And all of the temptation that comes our way, that third or fourth cocktail or the naked bodies on the internet or the outsized desire for the remodeled kitchen or the overbloated investment account, that stuff is medicine that is trying to make us feel better from that particular psychological feeling that there is something wrong with me. Here's the really hard part about this, is that all of that stuff that we grab for, it works. It works for a short time, and it dulls the pain. And so we just keep coming back to it. And then if we're lucky, or to use a more biblical word, when we are blessed, we get to the point when we are at the end of our rope or poor in spirit, when all of the ways that we're trying to deal with shame stops working, this is when we're ready to receive what the kingdom of God has for us. And this is where the woman in Luke chapter seven finds herself. This is how she gets in the room. She gets in the room because somewhere along the way she had encountered the love of God, watching it spill out into the world through the life of Jesus, the only thing that can heal you of shame is the love of God. Whatever her life had been up to in this moment, reaching for the little bit of perfume on a weeknight to attract the men as she walked, as she walked the streets, was now being poured out into a moment of worship and gratitude with no regard for what other people were going to think. All of her hidden stories are now put on display. And the invitation from God is to come out of hiding and to allow ourselves to be seen by God and to be loved by God. And the question that I'm really hoping that you can ask over this next week and over this Lenten period is this, 
Am I allowing myself to be seen by God completely? Am I allowing myself to be loved by God in the greatest places of shame in my life? So just two parts. You guys with me? Okay, it's really good to be here. Hide and seek and being found. First, hide and seek. So shame causes us to hide. That's like the most basic thing about shame. It causes us to hide. And to pull a little bit on what Tyler was talking about last week regarding trauma, shame is a response to what leading trauma psychologist Gabor Mate says uh, about big T trauma and little t trauma. All of the ways that you might want to define trauma, the response of that trauma is often shame. So even if you've had nothing big and traumatic happen in your life, there is nothing big in your life that you can point to that says that, man, that was like a really terrible experience. You could be suffering from shame that has happened in the little traumas that we all face throughout the world that we live in. Whatever it is that you want to hide and whatever it is that I want to hide, sitting underneath the hiding is shame. And this is what we find at the very center of the story in Genesis. This is at the very beginning of the way that the tradition that we live in narrates what is lost at paradise. Our first brother Adam and our first sister Eve, they found out that the way that they changed their relationship uh, with God primarily shifted the way that they felt about themselves. What follows on the heels of, of doing the one thing, the one thing that God had asked them not to do What follows on the heels of that is that they covered up with fig leaves. The Genesis story tells us that they made those fig leaves into coverings for the most intimate parts of their bodies because in that rupture in the garden, when they both took the fruit, they knew now that they were naked and they heard the sound of the Lord in the garden and it says the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. Where are you, says God. And here, friends, is the gospel on the first pages of the scripture. The man and the woman felt shame, and so they hid themselves from the presence of God, and God came looking for them. Uh, In his 2019 apostolic uh, letter, uh, Christus Vivi, Pope Francis writes about the importance of of the pastoral care of young people. And he talks about how shame really impacts kids and teenagers. And I don't know if you guys have been following in the news, uh, like since all of the COVID things sort of swept, um, the, the teenagers are having a hard time right now. The kids are having a hard time. There's a, there's a real thing happening in our culture around mental health and around just what do, what do we do with that? And the more I, I look into it, it seems that Pope Francis in his 2019 letter, he's like putting a finger on, there's a lot of shame that's happening. He writes this, he says, shame is a feeling that can lead us to hide and to run away and to withdraw into ourselves and to avoid others. It is a feeling that can make us feel small and guilty and worthless and as though we do not deserve to be loved. And so in our shame, we're playing a little hide and seek with God and with one another. But God comes looking for us. 
Just like Tyler talked last week about Jesus coming to look for Bartimaeus, this is the good news. God is looking for you. God is like a woman who loses a couple coins in her house and she tears her entire house apart and then when she finds those coins, she's rejoicing. God is like a shepherd that leaves the 99 behind and goes to find the one. God is looking for you. So let's go back to the story in Luke 7. What does hiding look like? And what does it mean for God to come looking for us? So this whole story unfolds in the home of a Pharisee, which we hear quite a bit about throughout the gospel. Uh, And why the woman in this story is clearly the focus of the story. The person who Jesus addresses most is the host. Do you notice that? Most of what Jesus says is to the guy who's hosting. He says two sentences to the woman. He says, your sins have been forgiven and your faith has saved you. Go in peace. But everything else in this passage is said to the host, who is Simon the Pharisee. And the story that Jesus tells inside of the story that we're reading, it's for the Pharisee. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And then he goes on to tell a story about two people in debt who were unable to repay the debt that they had. One person's debt was about six weeks pay and the other person's debt was about 18 months pay. Which of them will love more, he asks. And of course, he he answers rightly. It's the one who who he forgave more. And then turning to the woman, he says, do you see this woman? Which I take to mean, look at this woman. Look at her. Look at the way that she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Look at the way that she's kissing my feet and anointing me with perfume. Look at the way that she loves. She loves much because she has been forgiven much. And when I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. You gave me no kiss. You did not anoint my head with oil. All of which, by the way, would have been very customary. This is not Jesus being a prima donna saying, you didn't do these things for me. This is Jesus simply saying, like, you didn't offer to take my coat and give me a drink. You did nothing. Jesus is saying in a very gentle way to the Pharisee, you love little because you have yet to discover your own need of forgiveness. You're hiding from it. And all of this external stuff, this is how you hide from the place in your heart that you haven't let the presence and the love of God into. So this man's life is like really put together. He had a home that he could host in. He had resources to do so. He had the public affection of his neighbors. He was in good with the powerful people. He probably had a book deal right around the corner. All of these things were in keeping with the way that Simon and those like him would have understood what it meant to be near to God and to pursue after God. And so in his own mind, he was doing everything right with the way that he was living I mean, these are the guys that would have grown mint and dill and cumin in their garden and they would weigh out the harvest of those tiny little herbs and they would bring 10% to the temple. I mean, everything was buttoned up. Everything external was going really well and everything on display was catching the eye of everybody in town. But the kind of nearness to God that is emotional and intimate and welcomes God into the hidden parts of our lives, this can only come when you know how much the love of God has done for you. 
And this is what the woman knew. She knew it. And this is how she got into the room. She's no longer hiding. The only thing that can free us from shame is the love of God. And this is how you know that you've begun to become free of shame is that you come out of hiding. You're no longer afraid to be seen for what's actually true about your life. Does this make sense? And so the primary pastoral question that I have for you this morning is are there any ways that you are hiding from the presence of God? Is there anything in your life that you're hiding from the presence of God, from the from the sight line of God, that he would be able to come and see. We get free of our shame when we allow ourselves to be found by God and come out into the open and even carry with you the stuff that might be associated with your, with your shame. Like we don't have to get it all buttoned up first. That's actually the key. We just, all of the stuff that's associated with the the shame in our life, we can just carry that out with us into the open. So we don't know what it was or what specific thing in Jesus' ministry that this woman is responding to. The text doesn't actually tell us what was so transformational in her encounter with Jesus. But this story is the response of the transformation. But at some point before the dinner, she hears that Jesus is coming nearby and she goes home to grab her jar of perfume. And at some point in the evening, she makes the conscious decision to find the feet of Jesus. What would that look like for you? To make the conscious decision to find the feet of Jesus. And she makes this conscious decision to wet his feet with her tears and to let down her hair and to fill the room with the scent of her perfume, the scent of which would have reminded her of all of the knights and all of the men because this perfume was a tool of her trade. But the presence of God turned the fragrance of shame into the fragrance of love because the experience of love is what pushes out shame. I don't know what this story does for you. I mean, I've been sitting with this story for like a couple weeks and you're sitting here for like a few minutes with me so far. I don't know what this story does for you, but if a woman known in her village as a prostitute and a woman whose life externally has probably been falling apart for a while, if she can show up and come out of hiding and extravagantly display her love for God and Jesus praises her and says out loud the truest thing about her, your sins are forgiven, then I think I'm going to be okay with bringing to Jesus whatever it is that I need to lay in front of him. Whatever shame, Lord, is still at work in my life, Lord, come and find it. Come and find it like a gentle pit bull in my house. Come and find the shame that I carry and the parts of me that have yet to be made new creation and carry those things out. So here's the really complex thing about shame. Don't, you can't miss this part. 
The complex thing about shame is that the very thing that God wants to heal in you is also the thing that keeps you in hiding. And so it's like, well, which comes first? And it's why my friend Hannah says that we can't hustle for our healing. We can't work for our healing. We can't do enough in order to be healed. It's not how it works. It's not something that we ourselves can get rid of. And so God comes looking for us. Which brings us to our second point, being found. One of the earliest theological traditions, uh, the ones that gave us uh, our first creeds and made, um, they made a, a great deal of one simple fact, which is that at the core of who you are and at the core of who I am is not something that is deficient. At the very core of you is God himself because God has stamped his image on you. God has made you and I to be like him, to love like him, to be made in his likeness and to learn in the way in which he loves so that we can love others with that kind of love. The problem with shame as the belief that something is fundamentally wrong with us is that like all of the lies of the enemy, there's actually just a tiny little bit of truth inside of that. I mean, guys, there is something wrong with us. I mean, sin is real. It's destructive in our lives. And so there's this lie of the enemy that, the, that he has framed with this little kernel of truth, but it's not what's fundamentally true about us. Fundamentally, there remains in us something that can never be lost. In Genesis, we read, let us make the human in our image. Let us make the human in our image and according to our likeness. What is lost in the garden when this shame is introduced is our likeness to God, not our image of God. And I'm gonna tell you, this little kernel of digging deep into the theological tradition long, long ago, it changed my relationship with God completely. There is image and there is likeness and this is what we've lost, but this is what remains. The early church uh, father, Basil of Caesarea, offered an analogy to try to describe for us this distinction that these early uh, theologians were trying to make between being made in the image of God and being made according to the likeness of God. They wanted to reassure us that fundamentally at the core of the human remains the good of God's own image in you. You bear his image and something is not quite right. You've lost his likeness. So Basil offers us a picture of a mirror which at the time would have been made of polished metal and this mirror is meant to reflect into the world the glory and the presence of God. That's, that's you, that's me. We bear the image of God. We are his representation in creation. But this mirror has become rusty. And this rust, it's made up of all of the ways that we try to cope with our lives that, that create distance between us and God and ourselves and one another. The, re, the rust is the result of the shame. 
because it's in our shame that we reach for the idols. But what happens is we try to live our life like the rust isn't there. We try to pretend that there's not something happening inside of us. Like we become afraid of being honest with ourselves and God. And so we spend our life running away from allowing God to go to those really deep places. And so how do we become unstuck? We can't actually pull this from the text in Luke because uh, Luke doesn't give us the backstory of this woman But the scene that we are watching unfolds is what happens after the response of letting the love of God find you. This is what happens after because we now love God with the love that he is pouring into us. So the way that we get unstuck from all of this is that we become postured towards God to receive the love of God so that then we can pour out the love that God has already poured into us. We get unstuck and healed by letting God love us and we watch him love us in the most tender places inside of us. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, who was uh, one of the founding abbots within the Cistercian tradition in the monastic stream, this is what Bernard of Clairvaux writes in the 12th century. He writes this, every soul burdened as it is with sins caught in the net of vice, seduced by pleasures, a captive in exile, imprisoned in this body, fixed fast in this clay, sunk in its mire, weighed down by cares, absorbed in business, shrunken in fear, afflicted by sorrows, wandering in error, a prey to anxieties and uneasy suspicions like a stranger in a hostile land. Man, that guy's not leaving anything out, is he? He's like writing about you and I. And he goes on to say that even though this be our condition, even though those things are true about us, what we always have available to us and what is always with us is the image of God in us. And simply remembering and meditating on the fact that God has stitched himself to us that we are made to be like him and that we breathe the breath that God first breathed into our lungs. Just meditating on that fact and remembering that can pull us out of hiding. What happens to us when we are found in the love of God, what God does for us is he comes to the very place in our life that we are hiding and that we are hiding from and he shows us that he can sit there with us and he can look directly at the most vulnerable places of our soul and in this place, he can love us. And the way that we heal from that shame is to simply watch God love you. Now, there's a lot of things that we can do to create the context by which we are able to see that happen, but I can't stress enough to you that there's there's an active participation in this, but friends, like, here's the good news also. This is also a passive receiving. And so if you're, like, worn out with the thing inside of you that just don't, that that won't seem to let you like have joy. Do you guys have those things in your life? I have 
I have a list. No, I, I don't have a list, but I could make a list of the, the things on the inside of me that prevent me from really just being okay. And my experience as a spiritual director, as a pastor, is that as I meet with people and, and help people think about their lives, what I notice is that people are tired of the hustle of trying to figure out what, what's going on, what's happening? Why am I not okay? And I get it. There is a relinquishment that needs to happen where we say to God, I cannot fix this. Would you please come and fix this? Would you please come and heal this? This is how we get healed of shame. It's to simply watch God love us in the places that are the hardest for us to look at. And in order to be present and close to God, we also have to get present and close to those really hard places that we don't want to go because that's where God is. That's where he's waiting to meet you. And it's in those places that he's coming to look for you.